When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe, and then you'll never miss a video. In Cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. But thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of The Final Word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and The Final Word. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is The Final Word Storytime with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, it is, in Australia at least, bright and early on a Saturday morning, the time when some people might normally be listening to Storytime, but at the moment, it's only us listening to Storytime, and then it will be our editor, DC, listening to Storytime, and then it will be you listening to Storytime, and it probably won't be Saturday morning anymore, but this is where we are. Um, Adam Collins is down the other end of the line from me, uh, looking cheerful on what is a, a... 
trending towards late Friday evening in the UK. Yeah, late enough. Hi, Jeff. I, I have to take responsibility for the later recording of Storytime this week. I decided to, with my season being over on Sunday and having no further work commitments, having broadcasted 67 days of cricket this summer, I decided to go to the cricket this week as a spectator. <laughs> Uh, he went fishing. I went with uh, Daniel Norcross, who um, we've been dosy doing on Storytime recently, and Steve Kinane, our great mate who has been on the show before and um, uh, talking about uh, his expose of uh, Bet365 when he came on. But no, Steve is back in London working as the senior uh, European correspondent for the ABC and he loves his cricket, plays a bit for the authors. So we thought, you know what we'll do? We'll go and spend a day at Lords watching the Bob Willis Trophy final. So that kind of set our recording schedule back a little bit and, and here we are deep into Friday night. And now that Winnie is galloping around as we were talking about with Rach before um, she went to bed, it's a whole different ball game now that <laughs> we have a toddler who, who knows how to walk and and wants to run everywhere it's been yes it's been a very different couple of days of parenting once they're mobile it's like a military campaign where you know the other side gets the ships that have those retractable wheels on them and then can drive up on land and you're like hang on a minute hang on they weren't able to do this before yes, yes. There, there, there <laughs> tape is. over all the powerpoints oh yeah there's definitely some familiarity in what you're saying there she is a total handful in the best possible way I reckon she's kind of really came out of her shell in the last fortnight or so but yes I am exhausted as is often the case when we're recording with your morning and my night so we'll do the best we can I note Jeff that Mm -hmm. it being the first of October where I am probably the second uh, well of course it's second where you are now because that's the way it works Australia gets there before um, England does we will find out in about in the next 24 hours whether we are still ahead of Jimmy because we are ahead of Jimmy and then the mm-hmm. patron attempts to do the credit card thing and then it works out how many people have dropped off because their credit cards have expired and we get an adjusted figure. We haven't got that adjusted figure yet, mm-hmm. but we might mm-hmm. for the first time... The Duckworth-Lewis figure of the patron. That's numbers, right. That, that's exactly right. The Duckworth-Lewis doing correction. We've never been ahead of Jimmy after that and I've got a feeling we, we might just stay above him. Is that mm-hmm. your assessment as well? Mm-hmm. That is my assessment. And I mean, who who was happier in the world out of anybody than us that the fifth test was cancelled because <laughs> it meant that it meant that he couldn't snag any more wickets and overtake us. So he's going to have to come to Australia to try to keep us in the gun. Uh, so what you know, what we can do over the next couple of months that's all important to try to stay ahead of Jay Anderson on two. What is he two thirty six now? Two thirty two. No, sorry, six thirty two. Yeah, it's in, it's uh, in the it's in the six thirties, uh, and where yeah, we're, we I mean we as I say we should be in the six thirties as well. Uh, who knows? We we mm. might not be. There have been big drop offs before but the good news is that we did set a goal and we thought this might play out in such a way that we went push and pull all the way to the end of the summer and that's exactly what's happened nice when a plan comes together jeff it is and you know hopefully um, that's able to pick up again come early december when jimmy emerges from quarantine coming out of my cave and i've been doing just fine got to get it get down because i want them all the mall is the wickets. That's what he wants. <laughs> uh, right. Now, we, there's a, a little little question for the pod that came in from Ed, our listener, and I wanted mm. to start with that before we get into the meat of the show. Okay. Ed noted the weird ending to the third England v New Zealand one day. Uh, now, to, if, you, if you weren't paying attention to this, scores were level. A wide was bowled to Sophie Eccleston, off which she was stumped. And so Ed asks, has a side ever won before with an extra after a batter was stumped? 
from a wide. Very niche and I embrace it. The scorecard in the end shows Eccleston as naught not out because the wide took place before the stumping took place, which is interesting. I didn't I didn't realise that was the way things would go in the laws of the game. That the game the match was won with the extra before the bales were taken off. Therefore she wasn't recorded as being dismissed in the end. Yeah. Um, although I would have thought you had to complete the delivery in order to make it dead in order to wrap up all the formalities, but apparently not. I, I thought it was possible. I thought it was possible. I was doing the post game rap thing about Bobby for TV that night and at one point we were going to get sent Eccleston if she hit the winning runs in the end they made their mind up to send us a, a different player but the thought did cross my mind in that brief moment is she mm. both responsible for the winning moment and also stumped for a duck you know it's a kind of bittersweet <laughs> I mean it's not as though I don't know my way around the laws of the game I, I do believe me and I didn't know and I didn't know. So, yep. But it turns out that the wide yes does get registered before the bale's getting taken off. One more bit of quirky trivia. Oh, have you got an answer, by the way? Has that happened before? No, I, I don't have an answer as to whether it's happened before. I, I just thought it was good to bring up because no matter how much you, you study the game, it, it's like someone who once um, who, who I spoke to once who, who was rich enough to buy expensive wine talked to me about the, um, the diminishing returns on the improvement index that basically it's a reverse exponential so the right. say the difference between buying a $20 bottle and a $40 bottle will be extreme but the difference between buying a $5,000 bottle and a $10,000 bottle will be a fraction of a percentage point. Right. I'm not surprised. It's, it's like this. that with people who know the laws of cricket where there are people at our level who know most of them but the people who know the last, it's like the last fraction of a percent for the really, really, really niche stuff like this requires so much more study and so much more effort to come to grips with every possible niche scenario that it's it's a huge amount of extra labour for a very small um, extra return. But there are people who know those bits, you know. I reckon Alison Mitchell would have known the answer to that question um, without having to yes, think about it. Yes, Ali, Ali does strike me as the sort of person who would know the answer to that. Hey, something else that happened during the week. I mentioned the Bob Willis Trophy final. Remember the Leeds test? Uh, well, of course you remember the Leeds test because we, we did a podcast on it every day uh, a couple of couple mm. of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, a month ago, whatever. <laughs> What's a truck? Yes. Don't play dumb with me, Fat Tony. <laughs> remember when England bowled out India on the first day for 78? I do recall that, yes. Remember they went to bed that night 120 without loss? Yes, yep, I remember that, yep, Hasib and, and Rosa. Yeah, day one of the Bob Willis Trophy final, Lancashire, all out 78, mm-hmm. Warwickshire in response, 120 without loss. Wow. Th- that's wow. a bit of a thing, right? Well, I mean- Th- that feels like, I reckon if we went back through all the first-class cricket, and maybe someone will do this for us, I doubt there's ever been a third instance of a team being bowled out for 78 and the the opposition being 120 for none at the end of day one in any other first-class game. So it's happened twice mm. in about a month. And you know how much I love it when nothing happens, when, when something hasn't happened, yeah. and it happens twice very quickly. Well, someone might be able to look this up for us in, in the in the more fancy database that we don't have, the, um, the Samson-Finlay mm. level database. But, yeah, my, my sense is that the probability of a team being all out 78 – and their opposition reaching that exact score by stumps on day one is infinitesimally small. It does prove my point that I've been making for many years now that Lancashire is the hashtag Team India of the County Cricket <laughs> Championship. I've often often raised that. Did they have a similar number of overs? That's what I'm interested in. Did, did the test match happen at a faster clip? Mm. Because I, generally in a test match they would have bowled more slowly and had fewer overs Question. from which to... 
A, bowl out team one and B, for team two to score the runs. I think Bad Light intervened at Lords on day one, which yep. might have narrowed that gap if there was a gap. Mm-hmm. But um, look, let's not, you know, let's be happy. Let's be happy with what's happened. Let's not worry about what hasn't yep. on this measure. Mm-hmm. Jeff, given we are going on 12 minutes into the show, it might be time that we start doing what we're here for. Why don't we have a little wander through the history of the game? With a little bit of nerd pledge. Nerd pledge, yes. It's the game that we play with the lovely people on our patron page. It works like this. They fund the show. They are the, the bankrollers, the backers, the carry packers <laughs> of the final word. The Christopher Skaces. <laughs> Get Skase. Remember when Andrew Denton had the plan to hire uh, mercenaries to kidnap Christopher Skase and bring him back to Australia <laughs> I, I, in the mid-90s? I don't remember that, but I'm, I'm not surprised. I've been referring to the test being played at Skase's joint all week yeah, during the uh, India-Australia yeah. women's test. And I don't think many people are quite picking up what I'm putting down, but those who do, those mm-hmm. who know, know, and that's all that matters to me. There's a point at which you don't want to have to explain a reference. I, I had a few of these conversations with um, the editor on my first book. The, the, there were jokes where it's like, well, but a lot of people won't understand this. And I was like, yes, but some of them will. And the <laughs> ones who don't understand it, it doesn't cost them anything to not understand it. It's not going to diminish. They'll just skim over it if they don't get it. But the people who do get it will have their day greatly enriched by that fact. Was that the... Uh, that's uh, we're in the enrichment <laughs> business. I, I seem to recall, did your first book, did it get through the end? process when you referred to an administrator as a marzipan dildo or was that another piece that got yes as effective as a vibrator made a processed cheese was the line <laughs> um which which was borrowed from uh, from the melbourne poet emily zoe baker i think it did make the cut in the book it certainly got edited out of a lot of other outlets that, that published that reference originally in in an article. Mm. Oh, uh, yes. Some people don't appreciate it. Yes, yes, yes. The, the, uh, the article that you wrote, which was probably about like 3,000 words and like this comprehensive takedown, and after the lawyers got hold mm-hmm. of it, it was like an 800-word op-ed. <laughs> <laughs> With nothing in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like the edited versions of like Homer being edited up by Rock Bottom. <laughs> and then I saw that sweet candy. Um, and, and away you go. So, uh, yes, yeah, so a nerd pledge. That's that's what we were on, wasn't it? This this is the deal. Scacy, that's how we got there. Yeah, so I think Denton did this on a TV show where he tried to – he started doing a fundraiser to say if we can put like a million bucks together in cash that we can pay to some some guns for hire types, then they can just lob into Scacy's joint and, and just extradite him unofficially back to Australia. And then once he's here, he'll have to face trial. And eventually the, the TV network decided to disc continue support for this um, because it was so ideas big ideas that's what it's all about yeah so the 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 miniature scases of the final word instead of sending us a, a round number you know a perfect ordinary number like say the hundred million dollars you might have given to christopher scases pyramid building society they give us an irregular number like all of the cash that Christopher's case took out of the Pyramid Building Society and put in a briefcase, which probably didn't tally up to a round level. It was whatever was there. But in this case, the non-round number uh, relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what the number 
Man. And the first of those numbers is from Luke Reynolds, beautiful man from, I, I can never quite pronounce, I, I know it's the, the Pombo Bulls Cricket Club, but is it Pombonit? I would think Pombonit. so. I met Luke earlier this year when, when he contributed to something I was making with you, Jeff, wasn't it? About what Boxing Day was like with having a third mm-hmm. of the crowd there. So yes, he's a a proud member of the local sporting community. Maybe he'll he'll send us to Mallorca as well, as Casey may have. Um, but in the short term, he's sending through a re-upped pledge of 568 AUD. Jeff, have a swing at that. Yes, $5.68, the Reynolds pledge. Um, I, I also had some good correspondence with Luke that we mentioned on the show last year where my dad and I were trying to track down Fred Lemon, who played in a premiership for Pombonite in... Oh, 1919 or 1920 or something like that it was it was uh, an anniversary coming up and they were uh, Pombonite were putting together info about all of their premiership teams and they didn't know anything about Fred Lemon but they thought he, he might have been a relative of mine he wasn't but we were able to track down some descendants who were able to get Luke some photographs and other memorabilia, so happy ending. Uh, yeah. uh, Talk about hitting the jackpot, by the way. He hits up you, <laughs> hits up you on the DMs and goes, Jeff, your last name's Lemon. You know, you might be related to this guy from just after the war. And you go, well, look, I'm a historian, but my dad is an acclaimed, you know, uh, this is what my dad's done for 50 years, things just like this. You've, you've found the right guy. Give it to Andrew and away he goes. <laughs> yeah, he, he had it done in about an hour. He was like, here are the living relatives. Um, here's, here are some news reports. Like, he didn't even need to go to a computer. He's, he's got trove built into his body. It's just like his eyelids start fluttering um, and his fingers start twitching in midair and then he's just scrolled all the data and there it is. A beautiful mind when it comes to genealogical research, <laughs> particularly in the state of Victoria, absolute <laughs> sweet spot. So so given all of this for Luke, I think it's probably not Darren Goff's cap number, probably not a massive Goffy fan from Pombornit. Um, it could be Josh Hazelwood's debut figures against India mm-hmm. at the Gabba when the Indians were not so happy to be there. They didn't have a great time there in 2014 as, as opposed to the good time they had in 2021. But I, I think I have talked about Hazelwood on debut before. So I thought in this case, maybe maybe someone of Luke's vintage particularly being, you know, sort of, I'd, I'd, I'd guess not too far in age from us. Maybe it's 1995. Maybe it's happening in the Caribbean. You know, picture it, swaying palm trees, aquamarine water. Crucial series for Australia. Uh, they haven't won over there for so long. First test in Bridgetown, Barbados. Beautiful... Brendan Julian, before his getaway hosting days, uh, knocks off four of the top five. They roll the Windies for 195, make 346 in reply, leading by 151, but the West Indies could still be in it. They've got Brian Lara. As long as you've got Brian Lara, you could be posting a 400 lead. Who knows? And then in comes Glenn McGrath, knocks off the opener, Williams, knocks over Lara for nine, picks up three more later in the innings to take five for 68. Gets Australia the 1-0 lead. West Indies level up in the third match. Australia win the fourth in Kingston. Their first win in the Caribbean for 22 years. And they're only the third time they'd won there overall, huh. all time. 
at that stage. And uh, and I thought that might be the performance that Luke was thinking of for the 5-6. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Uh, I remember when Hazelwood took those figures on Testaboo, how easy a story it was to write about McGraw. It was one of his mm. breakthrough performances, wasn't it? Of course, he'd, he'd been playing international yeah. cricket for a couple of years, but the 95 Tour of the Caribbean when... Damien Fleming goes, but his shoulder falls off before the first test match. I don't think McDermott even made it out there. I reckon McDermott was injured before the tour. And suddenly this, uh, I guess McGrath would have been 23 if he were a day. Um, mm. and he's leading the attack with Brendan Julian, Paul Rifle. Carl Rackerman gets called up on the tour as a bit of a thank you for winning the Shield for Queensland for the yep. first time. Doesn't play, doesn't expect to play, but, but all the same, there's all this responsibility on him. Uh, and yeah, I mean... It's easy to look at just the Lara factor, but remembering what a, what a force Williams was at that, just at that point, you know, he and Campbell and Lara and Adams and like they, they and Richie Richardson, of course, that they still were, you know, a serious batting lineup and McGrath was able to toy with them through the course of that series. And of course they, they were able to, to win it, uh, win the whole thing in the final test in, uh, in Jamaica, but the win ahead of it was instrumental in setting up that winner-takes-all finish. And also that he had that look, like he was so spindly and sort of he looked so young mm. and, and skinny. And in those, and he's got the bowl haircut in those um, old shots. He, he looks to me like an elongated version of Gareth from The Office <laughs> in the original, you know, um, some, somehow coming in and bowling 138 and jacking it away off the seam, which you wouldn't have predicted. But yeah, there's, there's something particularly brutal about the sort of narrow mind bowl haircut that apparently he's done himself in the caravan before. Before heading over to, to the Caribbean for that series, oh, I believe it. I, I, yeah, it, it strikes me as you know one of those lines that could could easily have happened because he was quick then, wasn't he? I mean, McGrath at the very very start wasn't that nippy, but by about ninety five ninety six, he was at his quickest before he kind of refined it back and became such a steady operator from probably ninety seven mm-hmm. onwards. But yeah, this was McGrath at his at his paciest. Yep. So that's that's where we're going with initially. That's where we're going and what we're going with to use the right conjunctions initially. Luke, you can let us know. You can hop on the Discord, hop in the DMs, give us a little hint, give us a nudge if you want to get us closer to the truth about Glenn McGrath or not Glenn McGrath. Number two comes in from Douglas Wardell Johnson. It's four pounds and 90 pence. No further information, a free field and no favour for Adam to have a run around. Jeff, you talk about getting to the bottom of something, getting to the truth. The truth is out there. It usually is in the scorecard mm-hmm. caper. And this is where I want to take this. I want to go via a couple of points on the way through because it is in, in GBP. So it could very well be Robin Jackman's mm-hmm. cap number, which was 490, four test matches for 14 wickets in 1981 and 1982. Surrey legend, of course, most well-known for when the Guyanese government withdrew his visa in 1981 because he'd played in apartheid mm-hmm. South Africa. But, yeah, a, a broadcaster in that part of the world for many years after his retirement. Really, when South Africa returned to the fold, he was the voice of cricket there. So made a massive contribution to the game as a player, a broadcaster, before passing away late last year. As someone remarks to me a couple of years ago when seeing a photo of him, a man with a face of a million circuits, Robert Jackman. He... <laughs> <laughs> That was Bredig, actually. He won't mind me saying that. that that's that's Bredig's best line of the 2019 Ashes. <laughs> best line of the um, 21st century. Come on. <laughs> it's a very, very good line. It's, it's, and you <laughs> can was, tell the esteem with which Robin Jackman was held in England because because he was referred to as Jackers 
and more more than an yeah, MBE, yeah. you know, more than a CBE. If you can get the <laughs> ERS added to the end of a shortened version of your last name, that's when you know you're in. Or first name even, anywhere in there. There's a Wikipedia page devoted to this. It's called the Oxford Urs. Mm. I think it was called the Eton Urs and the Oxford Urs. And Test Match Special is a big part mm. of the um, etymology of, of the Urs being added to the end of names. I mean, I suppose, Jeff, if you lived in the UK, you'd almost certainly, because you mm-hmm. work in broadcast, be known as Jeffers. Yeah, I, I have been, I have in fact been referred to as Jeffers by several people in the UK over the journey, as though it were just assumed that yeah. that was a normal thing that would have been done. Better than being called Lemo in Australia, I can tell you that. Yes, you do get Lemo occasionally, don't you? I know you don't like it, but it'd be hard to push back on it once it's sort of set in. So I note that 490 has been made in Test cricket just five times and twice by teams that went on to lose. In uh, 2017, we know a lot about the West Indies chasing three... 20-something in the fourth innings and show hope making twin tons. I didn't remember the bit where England made 490 for nine declared. And the other time uh, was in 1999 at Bridgetown where Australia made 490, where Steve Waugh made 199, Ponting 104. The Windies fight back and bowl out Australia for 146 in the second innings, leaving 308 in the fourth innings. And then there's the Brian Lara, um, extraordinary. Brian Lara, 153. But they started that making 490. So that wasn't quite the... Bong behind the stumps, same yep. tour. Oh, hang on. Oh, bong behind that, the stumps. That was the Lara which, double, which, which, the test before that. The test. The yeah. test before that, yes. Yeah, so we've, we've now got the yep. photo, don't we? I've, you sent it to me, I think. Um, the I put it on the, the Patreon. Um, he's got the bail yeah, off as he, well, I think. It's on the Patreon page. He's got page, the okay. bail and he's got it. He, he's, he's holding the bail up to his bong and pretending that it's part of the bong while pretending <laughs> to light it, um, smoke the stumps. Uh, we've got to find <laughs> this guy. If we can find this guy, he will be in our live shows this summer. I say our live shows this summer with authority. Now that um, now that the, the government, the, the, the uh, National Cabinet has made their decisions overnight, the probability of us being able to do live shows have, has gone through mm-hmm. the roof somewhat. Anyway, As I this guy guess. might if we can um, find him. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I just I just want to go now next to what has now become a point of fascination mm-hmm. to me. Jeff, in 2018, New Zealand made 490 for four against Ireland. The highest score in one-day mm-hmm. cricket for men or women. Susie Bates, 151 from 84 balls. Amelia Kerr, 81 from 45 towards yep. the end. They broke their own record from 1997, and when that was the 455 they made against Pakistan, got there easily. They were six away from the all-time list day record, which is uh, Surrey against Gloucestershire uh, in 19, or rather in 2007. Poor old Cara Murray took figures of two for 119. She was playing Mick Lewis in this particular edition of getting clouted in a, in a one-day international. However, I left out one mm. score there. I left out Maddie Green. Depending on where you go. Depending on which source mm. you look at, Matty Green made either 121 from 77 mm. balls or 122 from 77 uh. balls. And it is all over the place. So the BBC and the Telegraph have it as 490, not 491. Crick Buzz have it as 490. Mm. Crick Info have it as 491. A number of other reputable sources have it as 491. So Matty Green's either made 121 or 122. Even her own profile's inconsistent. Her highest score on Crick Info is listed as 122, uh-huh. but it's referred to as 121 in the blurb. Her Wikipedia, again, is not consistent. At different points through the page, it refers to different tallies. I am flummoxed. There is 
I can't, I mean, obviously I'm not armed with much information mm-hmm. here. And yes, it was a rather chaotic day at Dublin. They made a shitload of runs. I get that, you know, a run here, a run there, these, can, these things can happen. Let, you know, let, let's, let's call the whole thing off. I understand. WG Grace style. No, we only a find of, me, at, you, find yeah, me an extra only single Only a couple there. of weeks ago. Yeah, only a couple of weeks ago we told the story of Grace playing against... Uh, playing against who was he playing against we went oh, through somebody it rubbish it was non-first uh, it was, class it was, it was, somewhere it, that, it was an exhibition no, it was game somewhere that was relevant to the war it was somewhere that was relevant to the war where was it uh, Grimsby Grimsby where he said to the Grimsby scorer just make it 400 when he was out for 399 so I get that the extra run doesn't matter a tremendous amount but this is the modern age this game was broadcast there was a live stream of it I know because I was walking through Paris with Vish and Amy Lofthouse for having a little getaway I think you were with us on the same trip later in the yeah. week, possibly maybe later that night, Jeff. We we all we all joined forces. We were following the bloody stream, so there must be a way of cross-referencing mm-hmm. where the 490 runs were made, in keeping with the pledge we he- have here from Douglas Wardell Johnson, or whether it's 491. And now I feel like I need mm-hmm. to know the truth. The truth is out there. There'll be the Association of Statisticians might be listening to this. If you can get to the bottom of this, if you are Craig Easdown from Cricket Island listening to this podcast, entirely possible. He's the, the comm supremo there at Cricket Island and you're listening, as he often does to our show. Maybe he will know the truth. But I feel like this is something that we need to get sorted out sooner but than later. But if he's working for comms for Cricket Island, surely he's got a vested interest in trying to negotiate the total down to 490 instead of conceding the extra run <laughs> at this stage. You know, if you're, work- if you're working true. for Cricket New Zealand, maybe uh, maybe this is the the bit you can do to support women's cricket is uh, is try to get them up to the four nine one just to chip in once in a while. But yeah, and, and there's no point asking Maddie Green because one thing I've learned from working in the caper, she won't have a fucking clue. No, it wouldn't. You would not have a Probably, clue. Cricketers no, never know. These I mean, she'd know things. it was above a hundred, and that's about it. Uh, there, there's the very occasional cricketer who is a badger and really knows their own stats, but for the most part, they're usually like, oh, it took 200-and-something wickets, and that's about as close <laughs> as you get. You know, Mark Warstyle, mate, you know more about it than I do. You write it, <laughs> you know. That was one of the more um, belittling moments of my early journalism career. Same to at 95, talking to Mark War about that stellar century he made there and asking him some questions. In it. You know, I hadn't interviewed many cricketers by this point, and pretty much question number two goes, I don't know, mate. You know more about me than I know about me, so maybe, you know, you, you sort it out. I'm like, for fuck's sake. It's kind of not the point. <laughs> and like that you know, real alfred me going, you know, you yeah. know more about me than yeah. I know about me. I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> right, little did I know. Right, so uh, that, that, is the, that is the end of my answer for 490. Thank you, Douglas Wardell-Johnson. Hopefully we'll have more to say in the revisits about Matty Green's innings. Was it one two one? Was it one two two? Next up, Andrew Beach. It just puts me in mind of a lovely forest of trees. It's a double E beach, not an EA beach. If you want to visualise the word, um, I know, I know, I do. It's coming in in euros as well. It's two twenty one. Ooh la la! In the Parisian currency of choice, uh, you might have been spending two twenty one euros while buying a cafe and watching the live stream of. Amelia Kerr tonking <laughs> New Zealand. Um, I think, was that when we, we did the little photo shoot at the, the fountain at one of those? Um, we that, did. Our album yeah, cover. Later that night. Um, that, that'll, it'll be in the final <laughs> word sealed section calendar. If you, when. That's the, that's the uh, that was the night of the, what do they call it? The the, the music D festival or whatever yeah. it is. I'm obviously, um, uh, you know, uh, it, w- it won't be that, uh, that sequence mm-hmm. of words. 
um, poorly pronounced as mm-hmm. they are, uh, where there is just music playing on every street corner. Oh, that yeah. That was a cracking yeah. night. We should do it again yeah, sometime. The, um, all the all the accordionists and whatnot. I wonder how Pombonite yeah. would be pronounced in France because I'm going to assume en français, you know, maybe Pombonite is originally in Belgium or France, something like that, and it's probably not Pombonite mm. as it is in – there's a law in, <laughs> in, in rural Australia that anywhere that has a European place name – you just pronounce all the letters in it. That's doesn't matter. Oh, here we go. Phil Jakes, Josh Philippi, and Pombonite Cricket Club. That's how it works. So, but you know, I wonder how it would be said on the the left bank of the Seine. Two twenty one for Andrew Beach. Now we've talked about two twenty one as a score. I reckon we've talked about all of the two twenty ones because there are five, and we've talked about Lara. <laughs> In Sri Lanka, we've talked about Rob Key, whose only ton was a double. We've talked about Ponting's 221. We've talked about Gavaska in the one of the best tests ever played at the Oval in 1975, which I thought about going into again because it's so good and we just had an England-India series in England. But, but I'm going elsewhere, not Peter Siddle's test wickets. I mean, that was 221, but... Andrew, if you want me to talk about Peter Siddle, I will let me know, but I'm going somewhere else at this point. Because of the Euros connection, I'm thinking maybe this comes from Ireland. Back to Cricket Island again. There's been a theme in the show so far today. It's all been Caribbean in the 90s and Ireland. Cricket Island, 221, numbers that go together because this is the tied match at the 2007 World Cup when they tied with Zimbabwe. Oh, yes. The Ireland made 221. They batted through their innings somehow. Jeremy Bray, 115, not out, better than half the runs. They're nine wickets down by the end of the 50 overs. Um, Trent Johnson made a few at the end who we've talked about on the show before. And then, Adam, Zimbabwe at five for 203, chasing 221. Oh, no. With plenty of time to spare, you know, overs to spare. Nearly 10 overs left, I reckon, and they managed to tie this match. Now, I discovered while tooling around looking for intel on this on the internet, the whole thing is on YouTube, the entire match broken up into 50-minute chunks. Uh, So did I spend 50 minutes watching the end of this game? Yes, I did. Um, And was it worth it? Absolutely it was. My God. So 5 for 203... When Brendan Taylor, a young Brendan Taylor, is going along with Stuart Mazzucanieri, who's made a 50, and they're looking good, you know. What do they need? They need 19 to win of about eight overs or something like that. And then the wily Kyle McKellen. uh, It's one of those classic cricket things. Mazzucanieri, bang, nice straight drive, bounces off the bowler, hits the non-striker stumps. Brendan Taylor hasn't turned around in time, and he's run out. But still, they need 19 to win. You know, surely they're going to get there, but... The scoring just dries up. Ireland just turned the screws. They've got this tight ring offside field and they're just bowling into the wicket, outside off stump. The pitch looks pretty tired. Matsukanieri keeps blocking them and hitting the offside field and, and not getting them through. And despite leg glancing a boundary just after the run out to make it 15 to win, they basically don't score off about the next three or four overs. And then the wickets start to go down. There's a, a, a horrible ball from Kevin O'Brien to Prosper Utsaya, who hits it straight to short cover. Who should be fielding there? But Owen Morgan still played for Ireland in those days. Took a good one. Christopher Impofu comes out, and this is beautiful, Adam, wearing his batting helmet, but he's also wearing his Zimbabwe baseball cap 
backwards <laughs> under the helmet <laughs> with the brim poking out the back. <laughs> Oh, no. The original stem guard, if you no. will. <laughs> oh, dear. And, and looking full of confidence, um, I should say, he, it comes to a point where it's, what is it, a couple of overs to go and Matsukinieri's at the non-striker's end and clearly they don't want to single off the last ball of this over and Mpofu just belts it down to long on and it sets off for the run and so they're both at the same end when the <laughs> ball comes in and he's run out. And it comes down to the last man, Ed Rainsford, who I did some mm. amusing commentary work with in South Africa in 2018 on the sandpaper too. So I, when, when we were talking about Michael Holding retiring the other week, what flashed into my head was my, my prominent Michael Holding memory uh, when he walked into the com box at that, uh, the, the sort of commentary area at that uh, Johannesburg test, I think it was. And in, I won't do the impression, but you can imagine the booming Michael Holding voice. He says, good morning, gentlemen and Ed. had a a really needling relationship with Ed Rainsford that was very funny but in this particular case Ed Rainsford is out there makes a single does his bit but they need nine from the last over they get most of them scores level with a ball to go they're bowling a spinner they're bowling what's what's his name white in the 50th over which seemed bold Matsukaneri just misses the last ball. They think he's stumped. So, you know, he's standing there with his head thrown back, going, ah, because he's been stumped. But his foot's still in. But Ed Rainsford's taken off for the run. And so the keeper runs past Ed Ed Rainsford down to the other end to take the bails at both ends at once. A fairly rare instance uh, for the keeper to to do both ends of the job. Double play. And Rainsford is run out uh, at the non-striker's end. Wouldn't have mattered anyway because they... Wouldn't have got the run. Even had Matsukaneri tried to tried to run. But 2.21, all tied up. And, of course, Ireland go on to win their next game against Pakistan, having tied against Zimbabwe. And uh, the start of something special, it, it goes from there in 2007. Outstanding. Well, Andrew Beach, 2-2-1, European number. We've been deep in the sheets with Ireland today. It all seems to work for me. Thank you. Next, we have an outrageous nerd pledge, uh, which mm-hmm. I'm immensely grateful for. Kieran O'Kane, he's re-upped his pledge, Jeff, to $26.25. And it comes with, well, more than a clue, but I'll, I'll let you explain. Yes, it comes with essentially a solution because Kieran knew that we were unlikely to get this on our own. As Daniel Norcross said to me on the show last week, if I, some of these numbers, if I were locked in a room and told you can't come out until you've got it right, I would be in there for a very, very long time, many years. So Kieran said, I may have gone slightly rogue on this one. Not sure if it meets the Nerd Pledge rules. Anything meets the rules, Kieran. Anything goes. Kieran says, it's a tribute to the great Will Day listener to the show as thanks for introducing me to your podcast it's his batting average for milton cricket club in the weird 2020 season (laughs) and asks us to do a professional profile of the work of will day who of course adam you saw go around not long ago yeah so that would have meant that will made 105 runs and was out four times i'm tipping Mm -hmm. i learned this because that's the most likely way to end up with a batting average of 26.25. 26.25. Will was the last minute saviour of the final word 11. We were one short. We lost a player at about, I think, about three in the afternoon. And Will came down from Cambridge and not only played but made a pretty significant contribution with his um, 
uh, as he described it, and I put it on the show, I think, last week in the match report, his um, interwar, stump-to-stump, uncovered wickets stuff, which was mm-hmm. very helpful. And he also was the uh, the sweeper from the final ball that, that came out towards him at, off from Dino's bat at, at deep backward point. Got the long barrier down, um, did the one percenter and made sure mm-hmm. that they only got the single and thus we won the game by one run. But let's deal with the number here. So 26.25 um, was his batting average last season. There's never been an international batting average of 26.25. There have been... It's just never come up. It's not an average which any player is, is registered. Yeah, right. So... Instead, what I thought I would do is look at the bowling average of 26.25, of which there have mm-hmm. been a few, three I think, and the one that jumped out at me was R. Webb, and I thought, well, I have to do this for Rob Webb, peep show reasons, who's mm-hmm. now Ro- Robert Webb's in Strictly this season as well, by the way. I think that's kind of wow. like taken peep show fans really aback in the last few years that Soph is playing the fucking queen in the crown. And winning uh, Oscars. And winning Oscars, exactly. David Mitchell is omnipresent over here. And Robert yep. Webb's now on fucking Strictly. Like, you know, these guys have kicked on big time. I'm just waiting. And, and Big Sue's... What's a, Big Sue's She's a royal. To? She's a royal now. She's now Lady Sue's. She married into the royal family. She's um, like 35th to the throne or something like that, or her husband is. So Big Sue's uh, – wow. and she was also on – Yeah, it'd be a real shame if the other 34 were to, you know, meet with some sort of <laughs> yeah, yeah, some real sort of misfortune. Shame. A real shame. But yeah, she, nice she, place you got here. <laughs> she was on university – I think she was on Celebrity – no, it wasn't even Celebrity, just University Challenge, representing her alma mater, mm-hmm. I don't know, about a year ago. And again, like every peep show fan is just clamouring towards the, the television to take a photo of it and enjoy themselves. But R. Webb played for New Zealand, but it's not Robert, it's Richard. Three one-day internationals in 1983 for the Kiwis before they were called the Black Caps. The first of those was at the Melbourne Cricket Ground in February of 83, the second final. So the corresponding fixture from two years mm-hmm. before that was was the underarm game, of course. But he did a fine job, took two for 47 from his nine, or at least did his job. The problem was that despite the fact that he opened the bowling and knocked over Steve Smith, that Steve Smith, not, not our Steve Smith. Smith was 117. Steve, Steve B. Smith. Steve B. Smith was 117 at the time. And they were well on their way to a giant score in, in the context of 1983 money of 302 from 50 overs, which mm. just didn't happen in that era. David Hooks was his second wicket, by the way, so a handy a handy scalp there. Any word on what Wayne B. Phillips and Wayne N. Phillips were up to yes. that <laughs> They were bit pups. Uh, I wonder. Well, we could probably <laughs> we could probably find out what uh, uh we could probably find out what Wayne what Wayne B was up to. That wouldn't be hard to find out. <laughs> so, as usual in that era, New Zealand's batsmen um, sort of let them down, uh, and they were all out for one hundred and fifty three, and they lost the series two 0 and that was that. But England were visiting straight after, so they went back home, and they had this thumping win over them at Auckland by six wickets, where. Um, our man Rich Webb took none for 30 from 10 so economical and then at the Basin they fucking pumped them they made 295 for 6 Glenn Turner 94 always Glenn Turner and then they bowled them out by 192 um, to win the three game series in straight sets uh, Webby took Two for 28 from 7.5, including uh, the final wicket to finish the game. That was knocking over Derek Pringle, guest of the show, guest of the final word. And his first wicket was another guest of the final word, Victor Marks. So I thought two final word greats 
were Webby's uh, two of his four wickets, his last two wickets. He never played again. That was the end of his international career. Four wickets at an average of 26.25. His professional career with Otago ended a year after that, and so it goes. But uh, I think that uh, for Dickie Webb and Will Day, 26.25, brothers in arms, linked together to the final word via Derek Pringle and Victor Marks. And when it comes to knocking over Pringles in quick time, both of us are pretty skilled at that as well. So that's that's something that you know can, can do a tube in under a minute. Oh yeah, um, if if pressed, if you want, if you want me to do it, I'll bloody do it. <laughs> no one to this day, scientifically, no one knows what Pringles are made of. Like it's definitely some sort of just compression of weird matter. They're they're the potato version of where they turn all the gristle and offcuts at the abattoir into that sort of pink paste that they made the chicken nuggets out of back in the the Morgan Spurlock documentary days. I remember the first time I happened upon Pringles, I think it's when they came to Australia. It was during the 92 World Cup. Now, this is one of those weird things, isn't it, that nearly three decades later, I can identify my first Pringles (laughs) when Australia were defeated by New Zealand in the first game of the 92 World Cup. Here we fucking are, and it's true. <laughs> Do you remember the flavour? Yep, the original ones. <laughs> the red, the red packet. Okay, you know, what's here? You, you get Daniel Norcross what's... talking about original crisps, by the way, or chips as we call them at, oh. at home. So he's he's strongly of the view that in all of the time he's been watching people eat crisps, and you know. Mm-hmm. Norky being Norky, he's thought about this quite a bit and been taking. He's got a thesis. He's on got it. a thesis. His strong view is that I think he's like eighty percent of people who eat original crisps or just lightly salted chips or whatever you want to call them are female. So by extension, he chooses not to eat them. He's like, no, 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 no. They've got their audience. They've got their market, and I'm not part of the market. <laughs> I'm in the twenty percent, evidently. That has to. Eat some stupidly extreme flavour, you know. Well, like he builds on this massive by saying, BMX yeah, nacho cheese. He, he builds on this by saying that that men get enthused by the the packaging and yeah. all the all the work that's gone in mm. behind the scenes to develop, like you know, Worcestershire sauce crisps, and you know they make them in chocolate now and all the rest of it. So yes, uh, that anyway, a, a digression back to Norcross, but Pringles '92 World Cup. There I was. There's got to be on the packet. There's got to be some sort of like an explosion with someone riding a motorbike out of it and then, you know, blokes are like, I want those chips. Fuck yeah, give that's me how you, That's how you sell things to men. That's <laughs> that's why a men's deodorant is called Axe. <laughs> like, yeah, Axe. <laughs> I like to stop my underarms from smelling with this Axe. <laughs> another, another slight digression I, I may have. I can't remember if I mentioned this. It's been taking up real estate in my head. I also found on YouTube the entirety of BMX Bandits, Ooh. the original film starring Nicole Kidman. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cinema debut at 15. But what stood out to me is that uh, Nicole has two offsiders, two. She's one BMX bandit, and there are two male BMX bandits whose careers did not take the same trajectory. <laughs> but curiously, one of them is named Goose. And now I'm pretty sure that BMX bandits came out, it certainly came out before Top Gun. And Maybe it came out before the original Mad Max. And so there's actually a tier of gooses because Goose from Top Gun, the most famous but the worst by by far. 
Goose Steve Bisley from the original Mac, mm. Mad Max, a great goose. But nobody tops BMX Bandit's goose riding down the hills of Manly and doing sick BMX jumps off construction sites while outwitting bank robbers um, and stopping them from getting their secret stash of uh, walkie-talkies that they were going to use for a big heist. So, you know, the Goose Trilogy, it's out there. Well, I'm just checking now. Uh, look, the, the original Mad Max film was made in 1979. Maybe that was earlier. It was like 76. Yeah, yeah, 79. 79. But, but you're, you're right. The BMX Bandit's 83, so that, 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 that certainly predates Top okay. Gun, which is probably 89, I reckon. So yeah. just, about, just about there in the chronology. Okay. So maybe Goose, maybe sort of the, the idea was BMX Bandit's Goose, who is set contemporarily, contemporaneously in the 80s, becomes Mad Max Goose after the nuclear destruction of the world and after the world goes to shit <laughs> maybe he's maybe he's then motorcycle riding young hot steve bisley goose who knows who knows so another diversion here we're gonna do a little bit of julio pledge yeah he's got a couple of julios i i want to salute to on the show because not everybody sends in a nerd pledge some just send in a regulation number they don't want the fuss but we we like to make sure they know that they're loved so special mention to katie morris who joined up as a julio you'll be pleased to know adam after enjoying my rhythmic gymnastics coverage on the olympics live blog that is the first time that rhythmic gymnastics has brought a supporter to the final word but hopefully not the last because i got i got very invested in the rhythmics it's it's an extraordinary discipline when you when you start to look at the the incredible degree of difficulty and precision that it involves i mean throwing things up high in the air and catching them is hard enough but doing it while standing on your head or doing a double backflip or something like that is ridiculous. So, Katie Morris, welcome to the show. You'll be pleased to know, Adam, that Shravan Kumar is our first nerd pledger to pledge in Swedish krona. <laughs> now, this is this has opened up. Patron has opened up the currency gates to the Swedes, and they can now use their own homegrown non-euro currency. We have an SEK pledge in from Shravan Kumar. I'm sure you'll be pleased with that as a Swede enthusiast. I didn't. I, I just I just assumed that Swedes used the, the euro. And I've been to Sweden so a couple I. of times. In fact, I'm I'm sure I used euros when I was in Sweden. Anyway, maybe I didn't. Maybe I... This is. I did spend a, a lot of time at the Euro Club when I was last there in Stockholm at Eurovision mm. 2016. So I stand to be corrected. Kroner it is. Yeah, well... Maybe they just use it in Finland and Norway, but not in Sweden. But the SEK is still alive. Uh, Liam Stanley has signed up. Um, heir to the retractable knife fortune, <laughs> Liam Stanley just just has a has a Scrooge McDuck style of money pit, but it's just full of Stanley knife refills. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're packaged. They're packaged. They're safe. But you know, if you need one, he can pop down and grab you one. I still wouldn't um, risk it. You know, <laughs> Paul Watts has signed up, who I assume just generates electricity wherever he goes, Paul Watts. My kind of guy. Just, just constantly a, a, a turbine, a, a turbine of a human being. <laughs> I, I got a massive spray from Rach today when we are going through the supermarket and I saw an adapter with three plugs that would, like a little sort of rectangular thing, three plugs of normal size and two USB size and I was sort of 
saying to Rach, mm-hmm. you mean I can charge five things with this tiny little thing at the same time and you know how much I love charging shit and Rach knows uh-huh. how much I love charging shit and she uh-huh. she just said, there is no way I'm letting you buy that. She put her foot down. Like, in, in the, in the, she's like, I'm, just like oh, I'm not allowing this. You're, she goes, I, she said something like, I saw you sneakily bought a plug the other day on Amazon. I go, what are you, do that? What are you doing that for? And I go, no, but I needed it. I, I, I sort of had this rationale in my head why it was required. She's seen in my Amazon history that I've been buying plugs on the sly. So she, she drew the line at this one though. It's good when your 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 secret shame is is, is relatively affordable um, and, and non corrosive. Yeah, Rachel's like we can't fit this in the trolley with these nineteen tubes of Pringles that you've already put in here. Uh, I don't even know what they're made of. Uh, and and the last Julio pleasure for today is Thomas Cooper, um, a noble profession. The Coopers. Nobody. I'm not talking about the uh, the, the South Australian beer scions but i'm talking about the 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 profession of putting barrels together of bending copper into a hoop and wrap it around some wooden staves so you can keep something in it that's what a cooper is originally uh those sort of names that don't get a lot of a run anymore chandlers the ones who made candles coopers the ones who made barrels these days everyone knows what a blacksmith and a baker and a butcher did but no people don't remember what the coopers did they don't remember how necessary barrels were your households used to go through 10 or 15 <laughs> barrels a week, just all kinds of stuff. Your wallet was just a tiny barrel that was hanging off your belt. <laughs> barrels. Society didn't grow without them. More barrels than Peter Dacos there from Thomas Cooper, who, by the way, it's kind of him to play a bit for the Netherlands, play for South Australia and be one of our yep. Julio pledges. It's all worked out okay. <laughs> I hope it is. I hope it is that Tom Cooper. <laughs> but if not... Other Tom Cooper, I'm glad you're you, whoever you are. Jeff, thank you for that Julio pledge at round. Let's keep moving. Next up, we've got uh, T.D. Fairbairn. Uh, Fairburn. It'll be Fairburn, won't it? Not Fairbairn. Why have I said Fairbairn? Fair, fair, Fairbairn, which in Irish Fairbairn. means beautiful child. T.D. beautiful child. Now, yeah, I'm, I wonder... I wonder. He sounds to me like a guy who runs a circus. I just keep seeing P.T. Barnum every time I read T.D. Fairburn. But there we go. The pledge is 5.43. I should know Fairburn. That, that's the airport we used to fly into on a daily basis back in my political days. Anyway, the clue was, I'm not sure if it's here where I give you a clue or elsewhere. However, all I'll say is it's in honour of, in my view, an underappreciated national hero. Now... I started off here with a New Zealand thrust, and I'll explain why later. I kind of was, I I played the wrong line, you could say, and ended up looking quite closely at Glenn Turner's double century out of 543 for three declared in 1972. It was the second slowest innings in test cricket, as we documented a couple of weeks ago, actually, 704 minutes and 759 balls, one of four double centuries he made on that tour of the Caribbean. And I I reckon he is underappreciated, Glenn Turner. I reckon he's one of those guys who you kind of need to know to know. Like, I don't think that, you know, when you're going through the... the, I mean, obviously, he is the greatest... I was going to say greatest modern New Zealand batsman. That's not reasonable, but he's right there. He's on the podium for the greatest New Zealand batsman Mm. of all time. But I don't feel like enough people know about him. It's almost certainly Williamson, Crowe, Turner. They're your three. They're your best three that New Zealand have produced with the bat. You could shuffle the order, you know, given um, Turner's extraordinary domestic Not necessarily in order, those three, but those are the three. Yeah, there it is. But then I kind of realised that, that TD was pledging in pounds, so I thought maybe I should um, 
save the Kiwi connection for, for a bit later on. In which case, uh, I think it has to be a great Steve Harmison spell from Lords in 2005. Underappreciated, uh, underappreciated national hero. I reckon that works for Steve Harmison. I mean, sort of Freddie and KP get the majority of the kudos for the 2005 Ashes win, but it was Harmison's spell on the first morning that set the tone. As I've explained on the show before, I was very lucky to be there and, and wrote about that day um, for The Guardian during lockdown as my favourite day at the cricket ever. So I remember it um, very, very well. Um, and it was wonderful to go f- full circle with the pod, really, in that Graham Starkey and, and Alan Edgar, who listened to the show, were our umpires in the final word game a couple of weeks ago and two guys who were instrumental in getting me to Lords that day to watch mm. Harmison spell. Um, you know, there's the, you know, the ponting sort of out the side of his mouth, we'll have a bat when they won the toss and then Langer getting hit second ball, Hayden getting hit there over after that, ponting getting hit, blood on the pitch from his cheek and then edging a, a beauty from Harmison that was kind of game on from that point. Then Flintoff gets a wicket in his first over. Simon Jones gets a wicket with his first ball, that glorious outswinger to Damian Martin. They end up getting to 190 all-out Australia in just 40.2 overs. I mean, it was total chaos that day at Lords with runs and wickets everywhere. And that counter-attack from Gilchrist and Warren helped inflate Australia's score somewhat. Actually, I was sitting this week in the Compton stand, the new Compton stand with, with Norcross and Canaan. I mentioned that earlier. But that that's like... The first time I sat in that stand was, was the first day of the 2005 Ashes in what we can now call the Old Compton. And I went home and finished my day at the cricket and documented all of it on the Victor Trumpet cricket board, as was my way at the time. I was quite disparaging. I went back and read my match report last year when preparing for that Guardian piece, and I will never share it because it's, uh, I am so critical of the England bowling attack. I don't know what fucking game I was watching. I know I, know I had a couple of beers, but put it this way, my respect for that England bowling attack grew over time. It may not have been quite where it needed to be. I suspect it's kind of reflective of where Australian cricket was, though, at the time, where the view yeah. was, we're just going to fucking smash them. We'll do whatever we want. And um, and this is an aberration. All out 190, but still one of the decent clip. We'll knock them over tomorrow. And look, and so it was. Uh, Australia bowled out England for, you know, fuck all and, and won the test match comfortably. But Harmison's 5 for 43. He was influential, you know, with that amazing slower ball um, at Edgbaston. And on the final day at Edgbaston, and at different points through the series. And I suppose... Most importantly, he's a fantastic man, a wonderful person to have around the media centre and, and most well-known for what he did in 05, uh, which was all started with his 5 for 43. Lovely. I like it. And and there there is there is some some part of me that thinks maybe, maybe you were there with Glenn Turner to begin with because, because here is a, a note. Here is a note from TD Fairburn. So tell us a little bit about his partner, Jess. He says, she's a Kiwi Aussie, Kiwi first, who still hasn't got over the bat slide deflection in the World Cup final, which we were watching on a phone on the way back from France. (laughs) How do you like that? Only the best stream cricket on a phone from France. TD said, at the time of writing, and and I I hope this has been amended since, since, but it probably hasn't, we've been separated for over a year now due to COVID in that time. Jess has joined her first cricket club, and I know she is smashing it. So maybe... Brilliant. Maybe, maybe, maybe there was a Glenn Turner Kiwi pledge for Jess who thought that Glenn Turner was underappreciated. But equally, it could have looped around to Steve Harmison. And let's hope, TD, that Kiwi Aussie Jess is in Australia rather than New Zealand because if she is, 
you can send her a slab of Brick Lane. Hey. You have come out of the hat for the beer giveaway this week in which uh, one person who makes a pledge gets to deliver a 24-can case of delicious Brick Lane to anyone they like in Australia. If you're in Australia, it could be you. You could send it to yourself. You could send it to someone else. The gift of giving is in your hands, TD, just as it was when you started your first circus back in the day. And uh, Brick Lane, who just won the award for the best porter in the world, in the world, you could send that. You could send some of the, the pale ale, some of the lagers, some of the uh, – there's a lot more sort of fancy things on bricklanebrewing.com if you want to get on there and check it out. And uh, I'm pretty sure that very soon everyone will have the opportunity to get discounts on there as well. I'm so excited now that I have booked my flight back to Australia with all the caveats in the world, by the way. I mean, you know, this mm-hmm. could easily blow up in my face, right? Easily. But as of right this very second, I have a ticket which I've purchased for me and my family, which will get me back to Oz. I cannot wait to, for one of the first things I do upon returning home, going to a bottle shop and buying some of the Brick Lane goodness. And I cannot wait to share with our audience at large the offer code that we've got, which has got a very strong Glenn Maxwell theme. We haven't quite um, dotted the I's and crossed the T's on this as yet, but we will. Oh, no, I'm I'm happy to announce, Adam, fresh off the press. Fresh off the press. Email in my box as of this morning. Oh. The code, you can get 14.5% off in honour of Glenn Maxwell's 145, <laughs> his highest score for Australia. The code to pop in at the checkout, if you go to the website, is Maxi, M-A-X-I, 145. Maxi, 145. Put that in for 14.5% off any Brick Lane products. It had to be a nerd pledge number. I'm glad we did it that way. I was there that night as well, the 145 Jeff from 72 balls or something. Maybe not even that many. It might have been 60-something balls. 66. 66. I reckon it might have been 66. Uh, I still think it's one of my more enterprising pieces of commentary. I was working for the Sri Lankan Broadcasting Corporation that night and needless to say the technology wasn't particularly good and it was a drop catch, wasn't it? It got to 100 after being dropped and scampered through and it was all a bit chaotic but managed to just kind of keep the, the balls in the air long enough from a commentary perspective not to completely botch the thing. And remember his incredibly emotional press conference that night as is Glenn's way mm. um, he wears his heart on his sleeve and that's partly why we love him and I'm glad we're able to include him in this so Maxi145 the offer code and I suppose Jeff you'll put that link in the show notes so people can click straight through and, and why, not, why not buy yourself a slab of the good stuff this weekend why not 14.5% off alright uh, next up Joel Emmonson now here's a curious one Joel's number is $1.77 some time ago, like a long time ago, probably over a year ago, Joel put in a pledge of 177 a different time. And it was, it related to something that we never solved, which was two numbers that joined together to make a combination of 177. I still haven't worked this old one out. Um, he says two related numbers to that are 12 and 49. So if you're out there with nothing to do and you want to you want to help us out here, see if you can put your mind to that. Two numbers that combined make 177 and two other numbers that are related are 12 and 49. I still don't know the answer, Joel. So if you if you want to, you know, help me close to that, you can do so in in the DMs. But Recently, Joel put in another 177 um, and said it just happens to be the same number as my first pledge, not 
deliberately, but he found a 177 <laughs> that was interesting and wonders if he's the first person to put in the same number for two unrelated nerd <laughs> pledges. You may well be, Joel. The clue to this second 177 is the most expensive ever. And uh, I had a flash of inspiration when thinking about this, Adam. I, I looked at a few things and I wasn't getting there with, you know, trying to find the most runs conceded in a spell in a, a 50-over game and that sort of thing, which uh, we probably mentioned earlier today with the, the Island-New Zealand game, uh, two for 119 off 10. But I, I, did, I did start looking up how much different players get paid because I was trying to see if somebody – had an IPL contract where they only bowled two overs and thus became super expensive. I did find that Kane Williamson is the most expensive New Zealand captain ever because he gets paid the equivalent of 1.77 crore rupees per year. <laughs> but I thought that's probably not it. And then I remembered something. Hang on, 77, 77. What if it's not 177, but it's 77 from one? The most expensive over in professional cricket history went for 77 runs. People might think about the six sixes. They might think about Sobers and Yuvraj Singh hitting every ball of an over over the fence. Thirty six, the most you can get off an over. But no, because what about extras? And what about real extras? This is nineteen ninety. I think this was uh, the end of the season in nineteen ninety in New Zealand domestic cricket. The opening bat, Bert Vance, who played four Tests for New Zealand, but was mainly a Wellington player. They'd set Canterbury 291. They'd got them 196 for eight, but Canterbury were blocking, blocking, blocking. Lee Jamon, a current boss yep. of Cricket New South Wales, was out there batting with Roger Ford, the bowler, and there were two overs to go, and these two had been defending stoutly for ages and they weren't going to get out. That's how it looked. And so Wellington decided, all right, they're 95 runs behind and there are two overs to go. What if we donated them a shitload of runs from the second last over and get them close enough that in the last over they might try to play some shots to get the win? So this is, this is Wellington's last match for the season and they were on top of the table and if they won this game they were guaranteed to win <laughs> the comp. So, you know, they didn't have a whole lot to lose, they figured. They, could, they might as well try this ploy. So they throw the ball to Bert Vance who... Didn't do a great deal of bowling and thus wasn't too worried uh, about bowling some absolute tripe. And he steps up and deliberately starts overstepping, you know, Muhammad Amir style by about a metre to make sure the umpire sees it and floating up massive full tosses, <laughs> just one after the other, after the other, after the other. He bowls 17 deliveries in the over <laughs> and the over went dot. Four, 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 six, six, four, six, one, four, one, naught, six, 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 dot, dot, four, dot, one. In the end, the 17 deliveries were so confusing that the umpire only uh, required five legitimate deliveries <laughs> to be bowled. But I'm saying here, you, you, you've highlighted the balls that were legal. Yeah. I mean... There are three dots there in the last were, five deliveries that are legal. I mean, obviously they made a decision to stop swinging. Well, or or, or he made a decision to stop overstepping, um, and it, you know they they decided that you know maybe he, we he was actually landing the last few on the pitch is the only way that I can read that. So, so five legit deliveries, seventy seven runs off the seventeen ball over. Legion races to a hundred, obviously because he did most of the hitting. <laughs> And at this point, Canterbury, 
are 18 runs away from a win and there's one over to come. And the thing is that neither side knows this because the scoreboard is jammed because the scorers have no clue what's going on because they haven't been able to keep up either. They're trying to do the umpire signals, what's a no ball, Mm. where's the ball gone. They're yelling down to people in the crowd to ask what's happening. The score isn't up at all. No one knows what the score is. And so both teams presumably think they're a bit further away from parity than than in fact they are. So there's this one over to go. Legimon has his eye in. He decides just to keep swinging. Why not? Off the final over of the game, he scores 17 runs from the first five balls, right? But then he loses strike on the second last ball of the match. And at this point, scores are level, but nobody knows. (laughs) Both teams are on equal scores. And Roger Ford who doesn't know that they're one run away from a win, defends the last delivery of the match because he thinks they're still 20 behind or something. And, can they, can, and, and just it doesn't clear, matter. I know that Wellington need to get the wickets to win the title, but do their opposition yep. need to win? Do Canterbury need to If Canterbury win, no. can they knock them off? Canterbury are out of the running okay, um, right. for, for the title. So it doesn't really matter to them aside from it would be nice to win the game. But not knowing that it's a possibility of winning the game, Ford defends the final delivery of the match. So it's a draw with scores level, one of those beautiful rare beasts. A drawn game with scores level. Uh, Wellington cop a heap of shit for their tactics, for it being contrived and so on. But they get the other results that they need, despite having no more games to play. The other results fall their way and they win the title anyway, (laughs) despite not being able to pull off this ridiculous plan to try to win this game that would have guaranteed them the title. Uh, So in the end, they end up champions. But had Roger Ford scored one more run at the end, they would have lost the match and lost the title because the points they got for the draw ensured that they got the title. So they were one run away from blowing their championship by using this extraordinary intervention. And as for Bert Vance, he he bowled fewer than 50 overs in his whole first-class career, which was a couple of hundred games. He did take four wickets, though, in his career, including two for 18 in 1987. That was his best when he got John Bracewell out and another Paul Kelly to add to the Paul Kelly rankings, (laughs) Auckland wicketkeeper Paul Kelly, who's definitely going to be above the Australian columnist Paul Kelly, but we don't know how far up the Paul Kelly rankings he'll go, was out to to give Bert Vance his best figures of two for 18. And that is the story of 177 for Joel Emerson. That's what story time is all about, Joel and Jeff. What a delightful tale, which I had a very peripheral knowledge of by virtue. I knew of the 77, but I had no idea about the context and the last over and... (laughs) Uh, and I'm, I'm very glad that I now do. Jeff, uh, the penultimate new number here this week is from Matt Laycock, who sent through uh, £3.94. Matt said to us that he's a Cumbrian, but he's reverted... No, he, he was he was on under the name Cumbrian. Uh, he had a mysterious benefactor called this, Cumbrian. Uh, bloody hell, right. Okay, this is why I have completely confused myself trying to solve this. You better take it up from here. Well, yes. Yeah, so, so I'd, I'd also like to thank Matt for opening his message with an all-caps nerd pledge <laughs> in the true spirit of the, the segment. I'd also like to, to thank Matt very much, who wasn't pledging for a while because he said he'd been out of work, but he said, uh, I've, I've landed a job and my first priority was to sign up for a nerd pledge. 
This is the first thing I've done before even telling my mum and dad that I've got a new job. Matt, bless you. Priorities are priorities, says Matt Laycock, and uh, we absolutely thank you for your service. So he was 199, which was Paul Nixon's one-day cap number, and now he's 394. But in terms of what that relates to, I, I guess we've got an area of interest with that region of the UK, but uh, aside from that, it's over to you. Yeah, well, I, I well now that that would have been easier knowing that he was Cumbrian. I thought he, I thought he was saying that he had a Cumbrian background. Maybe both can be true, of course. Um, mm. But um, yeah, I, I haven't done particularly well here, Matt, and I feel bad about that because this is such a a cracking um, little tale of your own, really, that you're donating to us before you, you know, settling your debts and stuff like that, which is just. Again, all, all thoroughly in the spirit of this podcast, I assure you. There's no England batting or bowling average, which tally which lines up with 39.4 exactly. Uh, and I don't think it's going to be Martin Horton's two caps from the 1950s, the Worcestershire batsman. Ben Duckett made 394 runs in the Bob Willis Trophy last year. But I don't think that'll be celebrated by a Leicestershire fan, which I assume Matt is given the Paul Nixon connection. England have made it once in a famous, famous victory when they defeated the West Indies in the early 90s to go full circle with a a theme of the show today. England made 355 and 394 for seven declared with Alex Stewart's twin tons, uh, 118 and 143. The Windies... Uh, were all out for 304 with Angus Fraser's 8 for 75, which we discussed recently. And they made 237, batting fourth, chasing 446 with Andy Caddick taking 5 for 63. We talked about underappreciated national heroes earlier and, and talked about Steve Harmison. I suppose um, Andy Caddick was, was Steve Harmison before Steve Harmison was Steve Harmison. No Leicestershire link uh, to that win of 208 runs, though, at Bridgetown. But it did mean an awful lot. What about a Cumbrian link? Any- yeah. See, I, 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 this is where I'm going to stop and say that I want us to do a better job with this because I feel like Matt's put in... I think about once a week we can pull the ripcord and say, I would love some help from the crowd on this one. So we know that Matt has a Cumbrian bit going on, probably a Leicestershire bit going on if if, uh, if Paul Nixon's cap number was his previous pledge. Um, I should say the other week, I'll tell you, I, I might pad this out by telling a brief story. Was Paul Nixon a Cumbrian? Before we get to that, I, I, this is not a question I could he, answer, he's a Leicester, ask you. He's a Leicestershire lifer, so I suspect not. Right. I suspect not. When Norcross and I were doing that NFL Red Zone for the last round of the county championship, at one point I was introducing a Paul Nixon interview at the lunch break I guess it was like one of those ECB or PCA sort of long form sit downs and I was talking him up and you know saying he's kind of the the man who who controls all at Leicestershire club legend you know England World Cup player um, you know uh, one of the greats of, of the white ball game in, in, in the country when he was playing and a fantastic wicketkeeper uh, Paul Nixon and I kind of looked at Daniel to add a little bit about it he goes and Daniel just goes yes Paul Nixon also mad as a brush and then just left it at that <laughs> <laughs> and, the, we, we, and, we, and we sort of fade to black with me fucking doubling over with laughter. And that was it. Daniel signing off on the internet. Ah, yes, mad as a brush. And I'm just pissing myself laughing. Would have been quite, quite good content, I suspect. Uh, but um, yeah, so uh, tell, tell us more, Matt, if you wish to. But also, if you're on Discord with us or uh, on the Patreon page, do drop us a line and, and we'll do it. We'll, we'll make a better fist of it next week with 394. What we'll do, Matt, is we'll make sure your first cab 
on the revisits next week, assuming we get some intel between now and then. And, and Adam will make good will. to you on 394. And uh, the last number for the show today, Bernard Sayer, our friend from South Australia who has moved to Victoria. 105 is the number and it comes in with an unusual request, which Bernard <laughs> may just get away with due to, due to the fact that he submitted this uh, just before his birthday. On his birthday. And it's no longer Bernard's birthday, but it was his birthday. And, and it, so, so he asked for this as a birthday present. He said, Jeff, can you please tackle this in your Scottish accent? And Adam, can you please chime in with your best Jeremy Coney imitation? Maybe we should do this. Oh, Maybe we Bernard. should do this sentence by sentence based on the way you've written it. I mean, I, I can see what you've got in front of you in the way of notes. And it seems like you've mm-hmm. gone with sort of sentence form. So I think we can probably do that. You do one, I do the next. I'll turn it. Yeah, that's a a method. Or you, you know, I mean, I, I can I can tell you what I've how I've meandered through this number, and you can you can respond to me. Yeah, I can I can endeavour to do that. This could be a complete disaster, but we'll give it our best shot. <laughs> All right, then. I feel a wee bit like a performing monkey at this stage. But <laughs> like, do the one. Lift your left leg up and now see if you can throw some popcorn in the air and catch it in your mouth. But, like, 105. Who has the most 105s in Test cricket history? It's Alistair Cook. He doesn't do the job properly. He gets to 100, he gets to 105, and he gets out. Concentrate. Concentrate, Alistair. Four times, is it then? Four, four times Alice has made it to 105. It's probably the number of times he's been pulling on the teat of a, of a cow or whatever it is that he does on the farm. Four times he might have put the arm up the bottom of a sheep before he has his um, breakfast in the morning, a cup of tea, maybe four sugars in it as well. <laughs> right, it could be it could be a wee little Justin Langer reference. The great Australian, the blood on the wattle man. Uh, one hundred and five Test matches he played for Australia. He got hit in the head in one hundred and five of those Test matches. Every single one he played, he got hit in the head at one stage or another. Made made one hundred and five references to Albert Jacker in the Test documentary. Wouldn't have a fucking clue what Albert Jacker did after the war. I'm tipping. Wouldn't have a clue what he did for the underprivileged in St Kilda. Wouldn't come across him, uh, but he does know a little bit about getting hit in the head. <laughs> now, right then, now because Bernard, because you've gone with Scotland and Jeremy Coney with 105, so I tried to pull those threads together, and one of them would be when the gracious England afforded Scotland an entire one-day international match against them at the Grange in 2018. It was the Scots batting first. They made about 350 and then England were motoring. They were mowing it down. Johnny Bairstow smashed 105 against some hapless bowling. But then he got out and so did the rest of them. Mark Wood, the last wicket to fall on that. Scots triumphed by eight runs in the end. An old man, Mark Wood. I've seen him galloping around Lords before like a horse. I just get the impression that he may not be all there. Um, But um, as I've said about Colin de Grandhomme before, um, he's not burdened with the hefty weight of intellect. And and it might be the same for Wood as it is for de Grandhomme. Right, and to finish us off, as for Jeremy Coney, well, we heard about his swinging holiday in London with Daniel Norcross and what they got up to. Uh, you'd be interested to know, how old is Jeremy Coney right now? He's 69. Nice. Yes. Hey, it's Jeremy. The, it's, the, it's the sex number. 
It's the <laughs> Lockie Ferguson had on his shirt number 69 at the 90, 2019 World Cup. That one we should have won. That boundary countback nonsense. Give out two trophies. They don't let him wear it anymore. He's not allowed to wear 69 because it's the sex number. I don't know. I think they should encourage more people to wear the sex number. Uh, that, that would be perfectly acceptable to me. <laughs> but Jeremy did play 52 test matches, captained in 15, and he did some useful bowling, 27 wickets, but most of the time it was about holding up an end, not about taking wickets. And that might be why Jeremy Coney ended his test career with a bowling strike rate of 105. And I think that's where we should leave this as well, Geoffrey, because uh, this is deteriorated fairly considerably over the last 90 minutes or so. And I'm pretty tired and I suspect everyone wants to go to bed. With me, maybe. (laughs) (sighs) All right. The briefest of breaks and then we will be back with the revisit section to round out this show. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. This is the final word. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, increasing delirium. A couple of quick revisits. I just want to say to for the record, the I don't do a bad I don't do a bad Jeremy County as a rule. I know there was some pretty ropey bits right then. <laughs> and I feel like I've let him down, I've let Daniel down, let my family down, um, let you down. Um, and uh, but you know, hopefully the the, the spirit of Jeremy was, was was through my very raspy voice. <laughs> well, look, it's late at night. It's been a long few weeks. Let's quickly uh, refer back to the 325 from Christopher Stock with a clue that said my number should be read as 32 and 5. Uh, and it came up while trawling for a number that intersects Ravi Papara and Kumar Sankakara. <laughs> However, sadly, Chris says, I drew a blank and plumped for this number that is top of one of the tables. Um, how did how did you go? Yeah, this is an absolute, absolute belter. So thank you, Chris. He kind of nudged me along the way uh, with a bit of back and forth and that got me to knowing that it was about 32 overs and, and I was able mm-hmm. to deduce it must relate to extreme frugality. And it was a, there upon which I stumbled upon the cracking story of Bapu Nadkani. So B-A-P-U-N-A-D-K-A-R-N-I, who was an Indian left-arm orthodox spinner um, who made his test debut in 1955. His biography begins by saying the chances of scoring against him were either nil or negligible. So it gives you a bit of a sense <laughs> of the kind of character... Um, this left arm tweaker was, and it's borne out by his numbers. Let me read you a few spells of his in Test cricket. In 1960-61 against Pakistan at Kanpur, he bowled 32 overs, 24 maidens, none for 23. Mm-hmm. Then later in the series, he bowled 34 overs, 24 maidens, one for 24. Expensive that day, but he did pick up a wicket. He did pick up so. a wicket, but did bowl two more overs as well. And then when England came by a few years later, he took it to a whole different level. And this is what Chris's pledge relates to. 32 overs, 27 maidens, none for five. That included 21 successive maidens. Remembering we had the Hugh Tayfield mm. consecutive maidens in first-class cricket a few weeks ago, but this was in inside one innings. This is the record. 131 mm. dot balls on the spin 
across a 114-minute spell. Jeff, you won't be surprised that the vast bulk of those, or at least a decent slab of them, were bowled to Ken Barrington. (laughs) The excitement machine himself, (laughs) slipping into high gear. But our man here, Nad Carney, wasn't just frugal. He he also um, uh, hit an unbeaten 52 and an unbeaten 122 in the same test match against England earlier in that 63-64 series, made 14 first-class tons. But he was a very effective bowler against Australia in Chennai later in 1964. The test after the done for five in terms of the sequence of his career. He took five for 31 and six for 91. Uh, and none of this was by chance. He used to bowl hour after hour in the nets and he would have this single gold coin that he would put down on a good line and length and bowl at that coin. No stumps, no batsmen. That's all he would do. Mm-hmm. At the coin, at the coin, which is why he became so accurate and thus so difficult to get away. All told, 41 test matches, 88 wickets at 29. The economy rate he finished with in test cricket was 1.67 runs per over. And I thought to myself, gee, that has to be close to the all-time record. And it is. He's two one-hundredths off having, well, two-tenths rather, of having the, uh, the most economical career ever. Trevor Goddard has that, who bowled left arm medium pace for South Africa, also making his, his test debut in 1955 and also playing 41 test matches. So they made their debut in the same year, played the same amount of test cricket, but Goddard went at 1.65 runs and over and Bapu Nadkani went at 1.67, so they're gold and silver uh, on that measure. Sadly, he passed away last year albeit just before the, the COVID pandemic, which I suppose in, in some respects can be viewed as a, I mean, it's cold comfort, I'm sure, for his family, but he did live to a great age of 86, passed away in Pune. I wish I knew that story uh, a few years ago in 2017, because I would have loved to have interviewed him uh, when I was in, in that part of the world for that particular series. Mm. But uh, we would have had a very risk-free net. I would have encouraged him to bowl <laughs> at me and I would have just paddled it on the head straight back to the bowler all day long. He, I'm sure he would have still landed it on that coin. Now, as he did the day that he bowled 32 overs, 27 maidens, none for five. The most economical spell ever for that number of overs in Madras against England in 1964. Bloody hell, that is quite the effort. I suppose if you wanted to be a bowler with a great economy rate, you would want to be debuting in the late 50s and playing yes. through to the late 60s. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been the ideal age to be it's gonna, just going to do a lot of bowling to Barrington, Trevor Bailey and, and company. <laughs> um, thank you for the revisit from Christopher Stock. Uh, Xavier Bochat, his revisit of, on his 129, for which Adam talked about Darren Lehman, it's some length, one of his Sri Lanka scores. Mm. Um, but Xavier said it's a team score from a different dramatic come-from-behind win. Well, that means it can only be one thing. Amazing Adelaide. England were bowled out for 129. That is Xavier's number. It was one of those days, um, the, the amazing Adelaide come-from-behind. It was bloody hot. Uh, England had been demolished at the Gabba uh, and then... They batted big, 266 for three by Stumps, um, Collingwood near a ton, Peterson batting on, Stuart Clark didn't get to do a lot of bowling uh, despite having been the most effective in terms of taking wickets and then it just it just goes on and on. Collingwood uh, and KP batting together, Peterson 158. That number again? 
158, of course, being the score he made at the Oval in, in 2005. So it was his second epic 158. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, of course. The the linking together. Mm. Uh, 468 for four at one point. So they'd put on 310 when Collingwood was out for his 206. Peterson gets run out by Ponting and it's 551 for six when they declare. Warns bowled 53 overs and taken one for 167. Uh, one of his least impressive statistical analyses in test cricket. I think it's in his bottom... Well, certainly for one-fers, it's like he's mm. it's either his most expensive or his second most expensive one-fer in test cricket from memory. McGrath, none for 107 from 30 overs. And, you know, they suddenly it looks like they don't have the juice, the Australia's two great bowlers. Langer gets out for four. They're 28 for one going into day three. And then it's Ponting. Uh, and then it's Clark. And then it's Skillcrist. And then it's Warren. And Australia are 513 by the time they're all out. So they're only 38 runs behind. England with an hour to bat. 59 for one at Stumps with Strauss and Bell still there batting. They're 97 ahead. So they're basically 97 for one going into the last day. And I think that's sometimes lost a little bit in all of this. Like, you know, we think of Adelaide and we think of Australia chasing down, you know, whatever it is they chased down in the last couple of hours. 160, I think. 168, I think it is. But... How about the fact that they are effectively, England this is, 97 for one at Stumps? Mm. I mean, they don't lose a wicket for the first 20 minutes in the fifth day either. So, I mean, it's such a dramatic, it's such a dramatic capitulation. England have, yeah. I mean, they didn't boss the match because Australia batted so well. You know, batted for two days. I think England batted for 168 overs and Australia batted for 165 or, or something like that. But like yeah. you know, it's yeah, it's not as though I, I remember when uh, at Karachi in two thousand when England effectively did the same thing to Pakistan as Australia did to them. They were at parity on the final day. They bowled out Pakistan in in a couple of sessions and chased the, mm. the runs down in the final session, something like that. In this instance, Australia were so far behind in the game by that point. Everything needs to go right, and and and, mm-hmm. and of course it does with that collapse. It does. All out 129, including a collapse of 9 for 60 uh, to finish things off. Warren 4 for 27, bowling 26 overs on the spin. Uh, McGrath had Gilchrist keeping up to the stumps at one point, which would have been... Uh, well, we talked about McGrath being quick in 1995. Wouldn't have been so happy with that in 2006. Australia need 168 to win. They get their four wickets down, 19 balls to spare. And Damien Martin decides that's enough. He was, he's, he's done with test cricket and, uh, and out he goes. Yeah, and, and it's kind of like the last hurrah for that generation. Well, sorry, not the last hurrah because they win 5-0 right, but it's the last time mm. they do something truly staggering together in that kind of come from behind. In a way, I feel like it's kind of linked to what Xavier had, that Lehman conversation. That was a huge mm. come from behind win uh, as well in in, uh, in Candy in 2004. I think it was Candy, the first test match. So thinking about this and thinking about the way that all came together and sort of being there that week as well. It was an incredible test match to, to be at. It was the Rudd-Beasley challenge, I remember well. Uh, that was going on that weekend in, in Canberra. I think it was Monday. So that might have been day four of the test match uh, where, mm. where Rudd got the numbers on Beasley and, and, and knocked him off. But So I had a, a strong interest in what was going on in Canberra whilst uh, sitting in Adelaide and, and watching uh, one of the more thrilling finishes in, in modern test match history.
So that, Xavier, is your one, two, nine, I feel. And uh, one more revisit to come from Michael Fellon. The 10.45, uh, Michael sent through as a clue to say, I could have chosen 13.58 instead and that the story of this number could have been very different if not for Andrew Simons. <laughs> okay, where did you get to with this? Yeah, so, uh, well, they're beautiful numbers, really. So, 10.45, you can do a bit of rounding here. Adam Voges' batting average in the season of 14-15, the Shield season of 14-15, <laughs> was 104.46, which rounds up quite neatly to 104.5. The pledge is 10.45. It all mm-hmm. adds up. He made six tons in that year. How he said, Michael, that his pledge could have been thirteen fifty eight is because he made Voges that is thirteen hundred and fifty eight runs across that oh, season, yes. and finally gets uh, his baggy green. Uh, I went back and looked at something I wrote that night uh, when he made his uh, test debut at, at Dominica, the first test series that I was sort of covering as a as a member of the written travelling pack and also the first test match I commentated on from the ground for radio and it was 3,100 days exactly from the moment he was called up in 2006 until his debut uh, in 2015. Of course he was called up just off the back of your previous answer Jeff the day after Damian Martin retired. Voges was brought into the squad and they didn't pick him. They picked Andrew Simons instead. So had they gone with Voges and not with Simons, who knows how that, that might have played out. But as we know, Simons makes that century at Melbourne and earns himself you know, a, a, a pretty decent run in the test team over the next probably three years or thereabouts. But yeah, a bit of a sliding doors moment, I suppose, because it was out of Simons and, and Voges as to who would get the final spot. So yes, Voges goes on to make this test debut at, at Dominica. And, you know, we remember that he made 100 on debut and, you know, he's the 20th man in 138 years to that point to do this. And I suppose no one had to wait so long uh, to get into the squad and then into the team. But it was a truly amazing innings. I mean, when Nathan Lyon walked out at number 10, Voges is on 59 and Devendra Bishu is spinning it round corners and it feels like Australia are going to be skittled for, you know, 140 or something like that. Well, Nathan Lyon faces 50 deliveries and helps Voges add another 20 or so. Then Josh Hazelwood walks in with Voges on 77 and within minutes of coming to the crease, uh, Shannon Gabriel smashes his grill off. I mean, like proper forceful blow to the helmet. Gabriel bowling at his absolute quickest. Hazelwood could have retired hurt there. You know, he was really frazzled, but he went on to bat for 65 more deliveries and Voges gets to the century. I should note, by the way, speaking of head knocks, the only reason Voges was playing was because Chris Rogers was at training two days out from the test and copped a whack to the helmet from a net bowler, just a guy who was um, one of the local clubbies who was there bowling uh, to the Australian team. I think it was the second ball he faced in that net session. The first one hit him in the dick and the second one hit him in the head. And that was that. He missed the entire series with a with a concussion that, that never abated and uh, he only got to play on that tour when he arrived in England. So that gave Voges the opportunity out of the tour game where he made a half century in Antigua and into the Test 11. So I think to that point, Jeff, mm. the, the thing that Voges was most well known for were his 62-ball domestic century he made with, I think it was with McGill, wasn't it, back in mm. um, back in 2004. So we are so far beyond that. Like 11 years later, he's getting this chance to play this, this sort of epic test knock in really tough circumstances. And yeah, it was a total 
joy personally to be able to compensate him moving to three figures because I met him on the plane actually I've told that story about us flying from from uh, Antigua to Dominica before with Patterson Thompson the no ball the, the chronic no baller flying the plane yep. and Craig McDermott saying um, I hope he doesn't overstep today when he was about to land the plane <laughs> but I, I, I met Voges on that flight you know kind of jokes that we were both the new boys to the to the tour and yeah to, to, to be there on comms when Jason Holder was bowling to him you know 35 years of age, tucks one round the corner then it's the start of a run that lasts 20 test matches in a 17 month stretch, I was sort of amazed when I realised that Jeff he only played test cricket mm. for 17 months and played 20 tests, I mean in order to play 20 test matches now based on Australia's current rate you have to play for 17 years you know, scarcely believable they squeezed 20 <laughs> into a 17 month window in that time when they were you know, relatively keen tourists at that point, they went to the Windies, went to England Went to New Zealand. Now they, you know, they can't be fucked really. So um, they, 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 they do their own thing. But yeah, he, he went on to make 1,485 test runs, five centuries, an average of 61.87. That puts him just beneath Smith at the moment, I'm pretty sure, and obviously yep. below Bradman. And it, yeah, it all. Manus is. Oh, Manus has got him higher, too, has he, right? And, and it at all, the moment, and it all starts. Probably come down. Yeah, I, I expect it will. Uh, with that shield season, uh, which if you round it, it was one hundred and four point five. And yes, he'll always be in that very special club. A century on debut and a, a, an absolute top quality century it was as well. It was, uh, and and the five was it five hundred and sixty eight that he averaged against the West Indies, yes. um, and still holds. That career mark, that wonderful career mark. He also beat Tendulkar's record for the most runs scored between dismissals in Test cricket <laughs> and holds that record to, to this day. Uh, a good egg, Adam Voges. Thank you for the revisits. Let's lace into the con. I nearly killed you. And nearly killed me by making me walk up Table Mountain um, <laughs> at... Well, I, I wouldn't. All, all I would say that happened is I made sure that Adam Voges had a much slower ascent of Table Mountain in Cape Town than he would have had otherwise. Um. I, I, I largely, he won't mind me saying this, that it was quite late the previous night when it was the day after the Sandpaper Test yeah. match. You know, it finished on the Sunday in four days, and you know, it'd been a hefty twenty-four hours or thirty-six hours in the life of Adam Voges. How could it not be? He's like, you know. Cameron Bancroft's mentor it had been taxing and, and working hard as well on radio with us on SEN and um, you know after a number of hours at the pub he expressed an interest in walking up Table Mountain the next day and I said you know what Jeff wants to walk up Table Mountain as well and I kind of tinder matched the two of you uh, mm. for that voyage together and you didn't quite price into the, the idea no. that you know he was an abs- he was absolutely a professional athlete mm-hmm. who had only retired like five minutes earlier <laughs> and you are not a professional athlete <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's easy to um, to to make yourself think in the terms of the way that coverage gets done, where they go, "Oh, the veteran, the old stager." You're like, "Yeah, he can still he can still hit 17 on a beat test. Like he's he's going okay." <laughs> um, uh, right. It lace into the confirmations. Uh, Adrian Muller, the zero zero zero. We got that. Jim Higgs uh, making no runs on tour. Uh, an excellent bowler playing in a difficult era, says Adrian. Graham Hartley, the 766, was the Sankara Jaya Wardner match when they had the record partnership. And Graham says, I'm honoured, though slightly frustrated at being awarded a slab of fear because Brick Lane are not going to deliver to Somerset quite yet. When we work out the UK import arrangements, Graham, we'll let you know.
<laughs> Import export. That'll be our next uh, enterprise <laughs> on the final word. George one oh two, Elise Perry. Uh, this is George Norman, of course, uh, that Sixers chase. You've got it. Thank you. I was lucky enough to be there for some of Pez's wonderful drives. Warned some young fans at the site screen to pay attention, and she has some power in them. Got her autograph, and I hope days of all kinds of folks milling around the fence after a game return. Great to see the way the WBBL brings cricket fans together. I think that might have been my first women's cricket match have since brought along many converts. Good on you, George. Great man. Adam Jones says that Adam Collins nailed the Eddie Hemmons pledge with the 658, yes. uh, although the third famous yes. thing that that, uh, that Adam Jones was referencing was Eddie Hemmings being hit for four sixes in a row by Cabell Dev <laughs> in 1990. Uh, at the time, it was the joint test record for runs taken off and over, Adam Jones thinks. It's an um, it, it's 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 a brilliant. I strongly urge you, Jeff, to bring up the YouTube because, mm-hmm. in the process, Kapil Dev takes India beyond the follow-on. Mm. He goes six 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 at nine down to complete the Eddie Hemmings over, and remembering, of course, that Gooch made three thirty-three. So, in a way, Gooch can thank Eddie Hemmings mm-hmm. and Kapil because without that. India would have followed on and he wouldn't have had the chance to have added oh, yeah. to his triple time with another century to finish off with 456 50-odd runs for the match. 456, 456 there you go. I that's, that's, my, that's my top of the head recollection. Um, yes, so, so Adam Jones suggested that our story about Eddie Hemmings bowling out the Florida Airlines-sponsored West Indies, non-West Indies team and taking 10 wickets for 175 is a better thing than being hit for four sixes, a better story than the Capital Dev story. So thank you, Adam. Uh, Lee Couchman, 233. No, this was Norcross at his best, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Norcross talking about Carl Hooper and a place in New Hampshire where his brother got married when he was a teenager. I know a little bit about Daniel's brother and a fair bit about Daniel and uh, I reckon he might have left a few bits out of that story. Uh, such a pleasure to hear Norky got my pledge and that he too has walked past on Hooper Street. That's right. That was the connection, wasn't it? Yep. Hooper Street. That is staggering that he got that yeah. right. I mean, was there some assistance here no. from Lee? No. I mean, as a as a listener, I'm like, fucking hell. Yeah, yeah. That, so that was one where so before the show, I sent Daniel the numbers and I sent him the clues and I said, what do you think, you know, what do you fancy out of these? What do, what do you want to tackle? And he said, oh, the New Hampshire one. Yeah, I know that. Um, and, and I'll do these other ones. And I was like, "What? What do you mean? You know that? How do you know that? What's your?" I, I've seen his. I've seen his prep process now. By the way, he he doesn't really. I mean, he's learning. I've I've sent him all the links for to, to use a few of the databases. But like, he basically does this off the top of his head. Mm. He's got that kind of brain. Yeah, amazing man. Yeah, anyway, so that's Lee. Couchman's 233, Carl yep. Hooper. And Jeremy Nash, the 667, was indeed what Peter Such took uh, in the first Ashes Test of 1993 on debut. Tick. As Daniel Norcross mentioned, he was one of those tailenders England specialised in in the 90s for whom batting was a complete mystery. And I almost pledged £5.20 to commemorate his 52-ball duck in his final <laughs> test appearance in 1999. <laughs> and that... 
brings us to the end of another story time. My goodness, uh, the time dilation factor is strong on this show. Once we get going, we cannot be stopped. Uh, thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, massive thanks to all of the patron supporters who fund the show. Thanks to Brick Lane for also supporting us, bricklanebrewing.com. And thanks to DC for doing the edits. We're on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. They have other shows as well if we haven't taken up enough of your time already. Yes, and if you want your uh, if you want your company or brand or whatever it is you're doing mentioned in the middle of our show, finalwordcricket at gmail.com. Drop us a line. We're getting our shit together for the next Australian summer, which is coming around ever so quickly. We'd love to hear from you. Finalwordcricket at gmail.com. Uh, I think that is enough. We'll have the weekly show on Wednesday, which does the news or updates or interviews or whatever it is that we feel like doing in a given week. Story time the following weekend and uh, all of the other final word bits and pieces that happen in between time. If you want to play the game, patron.com slash the final word. Send us a new pledge. Let's do story time. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. We'll see you next time. Have a nice weekend. I had to go Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.